Let's have a word of prayer. We'll jump right in. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for all that you're doing, all that you've done, and all that you're going to do. God, we believe it's in you that we, we live and move and have our being. You sustain us. And at every moment of our lives, our heart is beating, we're breathing in and out because of the sustaining power of Jesus, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. We thank you for who you are, for what you give, for how generous you are. You paid a ransom for all, and you wanted to be testified of that in due time. We ask that Jesus would be uplifted, that the scriptures would be interpreted as correctly as I can interpret it. And give me your spirit, God. You know who I am. You know where I am. You know what I have to bring. It's, it's very meager. It's very little. But to be merciful to me, God. Help me to be humble and to not worry about uh, just the typical stuff we humans worry about um, that make us anxious and, and fearful. Uh, just give me the spirit and, and help the word come alive. And bless us now, please. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Uh, so... Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 through 12, uh, is God's response to what's going on in the world at the end of time. It's a tailor-made message for the people who have to deal with the circumstances that overcome the world at the end of time. Yesterday, we looked at Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13, and we summarized Re Revelation chapter 12 as, 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 as a history of what Satan does to the church through time, and especially at the very end of time. In Revelation chapter 13, as a description of precisely how he does that. So Revelation chapter 12, what Satan does uh, throughout the course of Christian history, uh, all the way up until the end of time, in Revelation chapter 13, precisely how he does it. Do you guys remember that? Yes or no? I would imagine that you would. And so the message of Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 through uh, 12 is God's message that is responding to uh, the circumstances that people are dealing with at the end of time. Now, this is not unusual to Scripture. God is oftentimes found sending specific messages to specific groups of people who are dealing with specific circumstances because He loves us, He cares for us, He wants us to be aware of the circumstances that are going to come upon us. And we talked a little bit yesterday about how uh, love does not just manifest itself through messages that comfort us, but it also manifests itself through messages that warn us. God wants us to be aware, and he doesn't want us to be taken by surprise. He loves his church, he loves his people, he loves everybody, and he wants to give everyone an opportunity to understand what is to come, and he provides a specific message that's tailor-made for the people who have to deal with what's to come. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, a similar uh, situation is seen, and that is God sends uh, tailor-made messages for his church as they're traversing through time or traveling through time. Uh, so Revelation chapter 2 and 3 talks about seven messages to seven churches. These are churches that were local to the near Eastern Asian world, and the church, uh, the first message to the first church is, 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 is the message to the church of Ephesus. Ephesus, uh, the church there, was in a certain circumstance. Uh, they had certain circumstances to deal with. They were in a certain condition, and they had certain issues they had to deal with. And Jesus Taylor makes a message, and he delivers it to that church uh, because they need that message because of the circumstances they're in and because of the condition that they're in. It goes the same for the church at Smyrna, the church at Ephesus, the church at Thyatira, and, and so forth and so on. And so 
my basic point is, what we see happening in Revelation chapter 14, 6 through 12, God Taylor making a message for a certain group of people who are functioning at a certain place of time and dealing with certain issues is not, not, not abnormal. It's, it's quite normal. It's quite usual throughout the course of Scripture. We ended off yesterday in Revelation chapter 14, uh, and, and, and I want to kind of begin there uh, with you in Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. But before I do, I just want to mention that just a few principal points that I was considering this morning as I was studying the end, the back end of Revelation chapter 13. What you see at the end of Revelation chapter 13 is, in essence, uh, compelled behavior, compelled worship, compelled obedience through satanic agents that the devil uses to kind of garner uh, support, to consolidate support for him, uh, to do his work, to do his bidding, and whatnot. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 and 17, that he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark of allegiance on their hand or on their foreheads. And he has the power to institute uh, economic sanctions against people who will not capitulate or, or sign on. And he will even uh, threaten death or, or bring death upon dissenters and, and, and disobedient uh, people who refuse the mark of the beast. Okay, So you see this really serious crisis uh, depicted in Revelation 13 about the end of time, this mark of the beast crisis, right, where people are being forced into allegiance to satanic agencies at the end of time. Now, just this is just a basic thought, a basic point that came to my mind that I thought, I have to share this with my friends at the tent, and, and that is this. The choices that we make today turn us into the people that we will be tomorrow. Being made in the image of God means being made a free moral agent and being, and, and being a free moral agent, we have the power to choose. Okay, we have the power to choose. And the choices we make have powerful consequences. Okay, powerful consequences. I could, if I choose, become a murderer. I could, if I choose, uh, become uh, 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 an adulterer. I could, if I choose, uh, become any amount of different things, right? And so the only thing standing between me and becoming an adulterer is a choice, right? It's a choice. And the choices I make today turn me into the person that I will be tomorrow. Mm. So if I see in Scripture that in the future there's going to be, according to God's Word, a really challenging circumstance that's going to envelop the earth, it would, it would, it would be incumbent upon me to make the best possible choices that I can today to turn myself into the best possible mm. person that I can be tomorrow. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. Uh, the Bible here says that this is a universal issue. John says he causes all. And in case you're confused, he breaks that down. He says he causes all. Rich, poor, free, bond to receive a mark on their foreheads. Foreheads are on their hands. Meaning, if you're rich, you're not rich enough to evade this issue. Right? If you're poor and you don't have a lot, well, it's going to affect you too. If you're a slave and you think that uh, your life doesn't mean a whole lot, well, it's going to... Basically, it's just like this issue involves the whole world, and whatever your station in life, it's going to affect you. This is, in essence, what he's saying. And so I just wanted to make this principal point, and that was, let's make good choices today when the circumstances around us are not this hectic. 
not this insane, not this intense, right? Mm. Let's, let's make good decisions now for Jesus, for God, principle-based decisions that will develop us to the point so that if we find ourselves in these kinds of circumstances, we will have habituated ourselves mm. to following Jesus, period. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. Faithfulness today prepares us for faithfulness tomorrow. Mm -hmm. This is just a logical, commonsensical yeah. uh practical point mm -hmm. to consider when you look at this kind of circumstance in the scriptures. If that makes sense, say amen. 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 Uh, the Revelation chapter 13 ends with this like mark of the beast crisis. The world is enveloped in darkness and chaos and craziness. And then Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1 begins like this. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please uh, turn there uh, with me to Revelation chapter 14. And we'll begin uh, this morning in verse 1. Revelation chapter 14, in verse 1, the Bible says, Then I looked. He had previously been looking at the Revelation 13 mark of the beast crisis, right? Where everyone has to receive the mark of the beast on their hand or on their forehead. And then he says, Then I beheld and looked. Okay, so I was observing this. I was considering this. I was analyzing this circumstance where, where everyone's being compelled to receive a mark of allegiance to these satanic forces that are combining together at the end of time. I was looking at that, but now I'm looking at this. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. We made the point yesterday, and I just want to repeat the point today. It's a point that can't be repeated too much. Uh, the Bible says that there is an exceptional group at the end of time that does not consent to what's transpiring, right? They don't kind of succumb to what the devil is doing at the end of time. And it says they're standing with Jesus on Mount Zion, and they have his name and the name of, their, of his father on their foreheads. Names in the Bible... Oftentimes, in most cases, uh, represent the kind of person someone is, right? So Jacob was a liar. His name Jacob means deceiver. You're right. Uh, Esau was, was hairy and red, and the name Esau means hairy, red. <laughs> in Scripture, oftentimes, names represent character or the kind of person someone is. These people who stand in opposition to what the enemy is doing at the end of time, who stand for God. They have the Father's name written in their foreheads. They know God for who he is. They love him for who he is, right? They understand him on a meaningful, personal level. My dad, he died um, two years ago. And uh, he's not my dad by, by birth, but he was my dad by not even adoption, but he was my stepdad who never adopted me because I never wanted to be adopted um, because I felt like it was a betrayal of my birth father to take his last name. I just never felt comfortable with that for some reason. We're all weird in some ways, and that's a way that I'm kind of weird. And uh, his name was Steve, uh, Steve Russell. Really good man. You've got to respect someone who takes responsibility for someone else's children, right? Like, I'm not his biological son. His instinct is not driven to care for me, to provide for me, to protect me, but he chooses to anyways because he, he's just a decent and responsible man. And uh, he does for me what my birth father doesn't do for me, and his name is Steve Russell. Now, I know him. I understand him. I know his history. I've interacted with him. 
We've spent time together. We've grown. We grew over the years. I know him. I know who he was as a person. I understand his character. Now, you may know people named Steve. You may even know my stepdad, Steve. And you could say things about Steve. You could talk about Steve. You could have ideas about Steve. But you wouldn't know Steve the way that I know Steve. I, I, I interpersonally related with him for many, many years. And we were close. And I knew him. And he knew me. And I loved him. And he loved me. And he meant something to me. And it wasn't just we had this kind of like intellectual, you know, experience with each other where I knew facts about him and he knew facts about me. We weren't like trivia buddies. We were, we were like father and son. Like he was the one that I looked to for strength and for guidance and for understanding. Like he's my dad, right? Like he's, he's my dad. I have his name in a sense in my forehead. I love him and my loyalty to him is not just about what he can do for me. My loyalty to him is not just about like what I can get out of him. My loyalty to him has to do with the fact that he's my dad and I'm his son and we have history and we have love and we have understanding and we have connection and we're intertwined deeply, interpersonally. I know him. I understand him. And this is the point that we made yesterday. These people, this 144,000, who stand in contrast and start contrast to the people who receive the mark of the beast, they're people who know the Father. They have the Father's name Amen. in their forehead. It describes them here in Revelation chapter 14 um, a little bit further. But the Bible goes on to say, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of a loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpers playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Now, in the Old Testament, there's this book. It's called the Book of Numbers. And if you didn't know, the reason why the Book of Numbers is called the book of Numbers is because in the book of Numbers, the Israelite people were, guess what? Numbered. So the Israelite people had been delivered from Egyptian slavery, Egyptian bondage, and while, when they're on the pre precipice, on the borders of the promised land, they're numbered. The first generation of free Israelites don't make it into the promised land because of faithlessness, because they don't believe, and they end up dying in the wilderness, except for two of them. Caleb and Joshua, okay? They, with the second generation, get to enter into the promised land. Now, later in the book of Numbers, uh, after the first occasion of the numbering, when the second generation of people are about to enter into the promised land, God has them numbered, okay? So the book of Numbers just describes the history of the people of God uh, while they're wandering in the wilderness, while they're on the verge of the promised land, and how they're numbered before entering into the promised land. John is borrowing directly from this, this idea that's presented to us, this teaching that's presented to us in the book of Numbers. You have a numbered group of people that are going to enter into the earthly promised land. And now you have a numbered group of people in the book of Revelation that are dealing with the circumstances at the end of time who are going to enter into not the earthly promised land, but the heavenly promised land. And this is what John is borrowing upon when he mentions this group of people that the Father's name written in their forehead. And it's interesting, right? It's interesting to me. Because Joshua and Caleb 
they trusted God to the point that they would follow him wherever he led them, even if it was into war with the Canaanite people, even if it were into a circumstance where they had to, to, to deal with, with entrenched civilizations that had, 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 had cultivated the land and taken over the land. They followed God fully, and they loved God for who he was, and their commitment to him was more than just, what can I get out of him? You know, what can he give me? And this kind of stuff, right? Now, um, we continue to read here in Revelation chapter 14, and it says, These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. Now this, once again, is a reference to the book of Numbers. In chapter 24, on the verge of the promised land, mm -hmm. the Israelite uh, people began to interact with the Moabites and the Midianites, and they entered into worship and the ceremonies and the rituals that the Moabites practiced. And this eventually led to actually having sex with, with Midianite and Moabite women. Now here, uh, John's borrowing upon that. This group of people, this group of individuals, doesn't allow themselves to kind of be allured by the circumstances that are around them. Okay? They're not enticed by the women. The women were a mechanism through which the devil was attempting to separate them from God. The devil knew that he couldn't keep them out of the promised land as long as they were connected to God. But he knew that if he could separate them from God, if he could somehow, someway get them to a place where, where they were no longer attached to God in a meaningful and real way, well then now he's got them. And it's kind of the same with us, right? He can't keep us out of the promised land unless he somehow, someway disconnects us from Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. If I abide in you and you and me, you'll bear much fruit. But without me, you can do nothing. You can't do anything. It was the same back then as it is now. The devil knows that with Jesus, you know, all things are possible. Right? He, we can't be stopped. We, we will get into the promised land. But if he can somehow separate us through the allurements of the worship systems that are around us, well, then he's got us. Does this make sense? Yeah. This group of people are not, in, and not how do you say it, impressed with the women around them, right, so to speak. So the women around the Israelite nation, when they were about to enter into the promised land, were the Midianite women, the Moabite women, and all of their worship. And you could compare that just to simply uh, the allurements of the worship systems that are around us today. Uh, we continue. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men. My eyes are down. As first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth, for they are blameless. Okay. We're getting into Revelation chapter 14, 6 here. I just want to make one point. It's a powerful point, and it bears repeating over and over and over and over again. The 144,000, I think, it's pretty clear from Scripture, they are the end-time manifestation of Joshua and Caleb. And if you don't know the story, Joshua and Caleb were two leaders in Israel in the book of Numbers, as they were freed slaves from Egypt. And they were the two 
in Israel that when all the Israelites didn't believe in God sufficiently to move forward into the promised land after him, they said, let's go, we can do it, we can make it. Now, all the Israelites had been freed from Egyptian slavery. All of them had been saved from Egyptian slavery. They followed God out of Egyptian slavery, but they weren't willing to follow God in to the promised land. Now, of course, they're going to want to follow God out of Egypt because Egypt is a very difficult place. It's a very painful place. It's a very uncomfortable place. But, but so is Canaan in the sense that there are Canaanites there that you have to go to war with if you're going to actually enter into the promised land. And so they were willing to follow God out of difficulty, but they weren't willing to follow God into difficulty. Okay? So the same desire that got them out of Egypt kept them out of the promised land. Does this make sense? And so these people at the end of time are like Joshua and Caleb. They follow the land wherever he goes, just like Caleb followed God fully. So he was the only one in the first generation, along with Joshua, who went into the promised land. Because their commitment to God wasn't just about getting me out of difficulty. Everyone wants to follow God out of difficulty, but not everybody wants to follow him into difficulty. Mm -hmm. The people who follow God into difficulty are people who really love God for who he is, and they base their faith, all of their faith, upon his word. They don't trust themselves. They don't trust their perspectives, their feelings. They don't worship men and the approval of men. They're not really confused by the circumstances around them. They're singularly focused on God Mm -hmm. and the word of God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 22, The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is focused singularly on me, this is the Matt James translation. I'm adding a word, but it's it's implied in the text. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is singularly focused on me, your whole body will be full of light. Mm -hmm. You singularly focus on me, you're going to light up. You're going to have power. You're going to have spirit. You're going to be what I have destined you to be. If you focus on me, if you're solely focused on me, and that's what Joshua and Caleb were. They were radically committed to God. They defined reality by God's word, not by their feelings, their perspectives. They walked by faith in the word of God, not in their feelings, not in their perspectives, not in their subjective view of reality. No, they believed in the objective truth that's in the word of God. And therefore, they would follow him fully, follow him completely, and they entered into the promised land. And this is what the Bible is saying about this group of people now. Uh, There is a message, as I said, that's tailor-made by God for the world at the end of time. And this is the message of these people who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Okay, And we begin this message in verse 6. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell upon the earth. And to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. So God wants his everlasting gospel to reach everyone. Isn't that good news? Mm -hmm. God paid a ransom for all. Mm -hmm. And he wants all to hear the message of the everlasting gospel. He doesn't just want some people to hear it. He doesn't just want a specific group of humanity to know it. He wants everyone to hear the everlasting gospel, the good news of who God is and how he functions and what he's willing to do for those that he loves. Mm -hmm. This everlasting gospel, uh, this angel has it. This messenger from God has it. 
And God wants this message preached to every nation, every kindred, every tribe, every tongue, and every people. If you're black, if you're white, whoever you are, wherever you're from, God cares for you, he loves you, and he has a message for you. And it's, it's not just like kind of good news, it's really good news. It's the everlasting gospel, and it's to preach to everyone who dwells upon the earth. So all this craziness is happening in Revelation chapter 13 and God's response through a group of people who follow him wherever he goes is, is the everlasting gospel articulated in a way that's going to be really helpful for them in the circumstances that they're in. Having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell upon the earth saying with a really quiet voice, Fear God and give Him glory. I want to just emphasize for a second that the message of God at the end of time that's to go to a confused and darkened world is to be preached loud. Loud. When I was a kid, I used to be really bad at getting up in the morning. And now I'm really good at it when I'm at big camp because I go to bed really early. But at home, I'm not so good at it still. Um, Mom would come into the room and she'd say, Hey, honey. Wake up, sweetie. It's time for school. Wake up, honey. And, uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, Mom. You know, I, like, I figured out Mom. You just pretend like you're going to get up. She leaves. You go to sleep. <laughs> oh, yeah, no problem, Mom. Okay, yeah, just give me a sec. I'll be right out. And she, she leaves. I'm like, sucker. <laughs> you all laugh because you all did it, probably, to some degree, right? She comes back in, and she, she still speaks softly, but it's not as soft. It's like, okay, honey, get up. Time to get up. Get up. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm so tired. No. Late night, oh, yeah. I'm, I didn't even pretend to, like, pull the sheets off, like, put your leg out of the bed. And like, okay, yeah. And then uh, she leaves the room. I'm like, sucker. Lay back down. Go back to sleep. She comes back in the third time, and now it's like, okay, honey, get up. Get out of bed right now. I'm not leaving until you get out of bed. Get out of bed. Oh, sorry, Mom, I'm so dumb. I'm sorry. Uh, and you get out of bed. Okay, so I put my shorts on. I swear to you, I'm doing this. I put my shorts on. And then all of a sudden she leaves. I'm like, sucker. Take my shorts off, lay back in bed. You know, I was just a very hard to deal with. And the last time she'd come into the room, Came up. get up. Get up. Get up. Get up. You know, and it's like, Whoa! <laughs> I just get up. Sometimes people need a loud message because of the condition that they're in. Right? The world is in a condition that it needs a loud message. Like a loud one. A really loud one. It can seem abrupt. It can seem impolite. It can seem a little bit rude. So what? If there was a fire burning and there was a bunch of people in the house and those people were delusional and confused and they didn't understand the house was burning, they didn't understand the issues involved uh, around that they were involved in. They were just like utterly confused and drunken by their circumstances and like lulled into some false sense of security through their material wealth and possessions and you know they just were confused and deceived into thinking that they had all that they needed to have and the world was about to go to hell in a handbasket because they were going to get burned. Like, right? Like, they're in a burning house. Like, when you came into that house, like, I think your primary concern would be get them to realize the house is on fire and get them out of the house. And everything else is secondary to that. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, you want them to know that you care about them, of course. You want them to know that you love them, of course. But guys, the house is on fire. Mm-hmm. 
So it's like, I, I want to show these guys that I'm really loving and kind. So I'm going to sit down on the couch with them while they're watching TV in the burning house, you know? Like, we're going to sit down on the couch. I'll have a few chips. Hey, you got anything to drink? Yeah, I got some sodas in the fridge. Cool. You go get a soda, you sit down, you talk about, hey, where'd you come from? What's your name? I don't really care. You know, so you develop a relationship, and that's cool. And then you say, hey, you know what? The house is on fire. You want to get out of here? You're like, well, I don't see any fire at all. I think the house is just perfectly great. And you're like, well, okay, I want to be polite, so I better not say anything offensive. And then you walk out of the house. You're not a very loving person. You're a very selfish one. And you care about what people think of you more than you care about people. If you care about people enough, and they're in a burning house, and they're confused and dazed and delusional, guess what you do? Get them out of the house. And if they get a little bit offended on the way out, when they get out and the house falls down and everything's burned up and they're staring at the ashes, you know what they're going to say? Thank God. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you. I, I got a little bit upset with you and I was a little confused, but you know what? You love me more than you love what I thought about mm. you. And you cared about me more than you cared about your own comfort. So you spoke to me with a loud voice. You get the point that I'm making. Yeah. And so I'm not saying that, do you, you know, that, that, so somebody here thinking, well, there's fanatical elements in our church. And we need to be careful about how we speak. And don't give anyone license to be more crazy than they already are. Well, that's cool. <laughs> Look, there's going to be people who are crazy no matter what, okay? So just, if it says preach in a loud voice, then preach in a loud voice. Amen. I'm just saying that the message is characterized by loudness not so much like you scream loud but you you're you're unashamed clear bold honest you know what i'm saying so saying with a loud voice fear god and give glory to him fear god and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come okay so the beast is judging people the beast is marking people the beast is imposing forceful consequences on people. You're fearing for your life. You're you're being enveloped in the circumstances around you. And the message coming from God loudly is, hey, hey, don't fear the beast. Fear God and give him glory. Hmm. Now, to be sure, when the Bible says fear God, it is not in any way saying have a disposition or an attitude of fear towards God. Not at all. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The Bible says perfect love casts out fear in 1 John chapter 4. We love God because he first loved us. Now, fear can be a motivating factor in getting someone like awakened, but it's definitely not like something that, that actually gets a person into a long-term loving relationship with God. And so, of course, when the Bible says, Fear God! And give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. It's not saying, like, be afraid of God, because he's going to kick your butt if you worship the beast. That's not the basic point of the text. To fear God and to give him glory is to reverence him, is to respect him. And fear may be a part of that, by the way. I was just reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with my son, Max. And it's interesting what C.S. Lewis then says about God. He says that some people think that um, that a person cannot be uh, scary and good at the same time, or terrible and good at the same time. And he's, and he's kind of describing Aslan, the lion, that's a representation of Jesus. He's a wild lion. He's uncontainable. He's uncontrollable. He's eternal. He's powerful. He's unreal. He's beyond. And your skinny, little, puny brain, when it comes into contact with that, it might get afraid a little bit, and that's okay, but he's good. 
Mm. Yeah, so fear may be a part of fearing God, but fearing God is not having an attitude or a disposition of fear towards him. It's saying respect him, reverence him. Don't reverence the beast. Mm. Don't worry about the beast. The beast is a misrepresentation of God. The beast has limited capacity. He can take your life, but he can't destroy your soul. He can take your life, but he can't take your soul. Right? Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. So God is in essence saying, you're judging my people. You're judging those who follow me wherever I go. You're judging those who have my name in their foreheads. Well, guess what? My judgment has come. I'm going to judge you. Right? Does this make sense? It's a response from God. The, the, the pompous, arrogant, man-made systems of power on this earth are, are setting themselves up as God and judging those who actually follow God at the end of time. And the message from God is, no, no, fear God and give him glory. Just a couple few points here real quick, and we're going to end. Fear God and give him glory is an expression of the everlasting gospel. Okay, you may not have ever thought of this before, but in, in verse 6 it says, I saw the angel who had the everlasting gospel to preach. Okay, so think in your heads, you're really intelligent people, most of you. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a messenger, an angel messenger who has a message from God to preach to the world, and, and, and he has, he possesses the everlasting gospel. He's going to preach. And then what does he say? Fear God and give him glory. So fear God and give him glory is an expression of the everlasting gospel because the angel flying in the midst of heaven had the everlasting gospel to preach, and then what does he preach? You with me? Fear God and give him glory. So fear God and give him glory is, a, is, a, is an articulation of the everlasting gospel for the people at the end of time. So fear God. Know God. Understand God. Don't be confused by the misrepresentation of God that has been foisted upon the world through the beast power. Does that make sense? So don't fear the beast. Fear God. And you can't fear God if you don't know who he is. And how do you learn who God is? Saved through the teachings of scripture. The doctrines, the fundamental doctrines of Scripture. You with me? So doctrine or teaching from the Bible teaches you who God is and how he functions and how he relates to people. It's popular to say in the Adventist church today, we don't care so much about doctrine, it's all about Jesus. But did you know that's a doctrinal statement? That's right. So that's that's logically inconsistent thing to say. Now, sometimes when people say that, what they mean is, is let's not get stuck in some kind of trivia-style religious experience where we think if we know certain ideas that we're in a right relationship mm. with God. When people say we uplift Jesus and don't worry about doctrine, if, if that's what they mean, then we all say amen, right? Mm. But we don't uh, categorically dismiss the fundamental teachings of Scripture simply because we understand that it's through Jesus that we're reconciled to God, in the mm. person and in the body of Jesus. That itself, that idea itself, is a doctrine of Scripture. So the Bible says, fear God and give Him glory. Well, how can I fear God and give him glory if I don't know who he is as a person and what gives me access to knowing who God really is as a person the teachings or doctrines of scripture that communicate him and how he functions to me does this make sense yes. so, so, so don't be confused uh, doctrine is very important as it sheds light on God does that make sense okay last point or two here the three angels message at the end of time is the most loving message that can be shared because tailor made from for the people at the end of time from God. Mm -hmm. Just just consider that it needs to be couched in the gospel, preached in love, but it is the most loving message that could be preached at the end of time because it's tailor made for the people at the end of time. Mm -hmm. Okay, fear God and give Him glory for the hour of His judgment has come.
Don't worry about the beast. Don't worry about his judgment. Fear God. Know who he is. Understand scripture and understand it correctly as it communicates God correctly.